section thirty nine of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty six ebb and flow part two meanwhile there were many changes taking place in the social and political life of england many eminent men passed away during the years that lord palmerston held his almost absolute sway over the house of commons one man we may mention in the first instance although he was no politician and his death in no way affected the prospects of parties the attention of the english people was called from questions of foreign policy and of possible intervention in the danish quarrel by an event which happened on christmas eve eighteen sixty three that day it became known throughout london that the author of vanity fair was dead mr thackeray died suddenly at the house in kensington which he had lately had built for him in the fashion of that queen anne period which he loved and had illustrated so admirably he was still in the very prime of life no one had expected that his career was so soon to close it had not been in any sense a long career success had come somewhat late to him and he was left but a short time to enjoy it we have already spoken of his works and his literary character since the publication of the newcombs he had not added to his reputation indeed it hardly needed any addition he had established himself in the very foremost rank of english novelists with fielding and goldsmith and miss austen and dickens he had been a literary man and hardly anything else having had little to do with politics or political journalism once indeed he was seized with a sudden ambition to take a seat in the house of commons and at the general election of eighteen fifty seven he offered himself as a candidate for the city of oxford in opposition to mr cardwell he was not elected and he seemed to accept failure cheerfully as a hint that he had better keep to literary work for the future he would go back to his author's desk he said good-humouredly and he kept his word it is not likely that he would have been a parliamentary success he had no gift of speech and had but little interest in the details of party politics his political views were sentiments rather than opinions most of his admirers would probably have been sorry to see him involved in the partisan debates of the house of commons where any practised official trained to glibness or any overbearing declaimer would have been far more than a match for him and where he had no special need or call to go it is not true that success in parliament is incompatible with literary distinction macaulay and grote and two of thackeray's own craft lord beaconsfield and lord lytton may be called as recent witnesses to disprove that common impression but these were men who had a distinctly political object or who loved political life and were only following their star when they sought seats in the house of commons thackeray had no such vocation and would have been as much out of place in parliamentary debate as a painter or a musician he had no need to covet parliamentary reputation as it was well said when the news of his defeat at oxford reached london the houses of lords and commons together could not have produced barry linden and pendennis his early death was a source not only of national but of world-wide regret it eclipsed the christmas gaiety of nations 
thackeray was as much admired and appreciated in america as in england mr russell the correspondent of the times has given an amusing account of a southern confederate leader engaged in an attempt to run the northern blockade who kept talking all the time and even at the most exciting and perilous moments about the various characters in thackeray's novels if thackeray died too soon it was only too soon for his family and his friends his fame was secure he could hardly with any length of years have added a cubit to his literary stature a whole group of statesmen had passed prematurely away sir james graham had died after several years of a quiet career still a celebrity in the house of commons but not much in the memory of the public outside it one of his latest speeches in parliament was on the chinese war of eighteen sixty on the last day of the session of eighteen sixty one and when almost all the other members had left the house he remained for a while talking with a friend and former colleague and as they were separating sir james graham expressed a cheery hope that they should meet on the first day of the next session in the same place but graham died the following october sidney herbert had died a few weeks before in the same year sidney herbert had been raised to the peerage as lord herbert of lee he had entered the house of lords before his breaking health rendered it impossible to stand the wear and tear of life in the commons and he loved politics and public affairs and could not be induced to renounce them and live in quiet he was a man of great gifts and was looked upon as a prospective prime minister he had a graceful and gracious bearing he was an able administrator and a very skilful and persuasive debater his style of speaking was what might be called if it is lawful to coin an expression for the purpose the pointed conversational he never declaimed never even tried to be what is commonly called eloquent but his sentences came out with a singularly expressive combination of force and ease every argument telling every stroke having the lightness of an eastern champion's sword-play he had high social station and was in every way fitted to stand at the head of english public affairs he was but fifty-one years of age when he died the country for some time looked on sir george lewis as a man likely to lead an administration but he too passed away before his natural time he died two years after sir james graham and sidney herbert and was only some fifty-seven years old at his death lord elgin was dead and lord canning and lord dalhousie had been some years dead the duke of newcastle died in eighteen sixty four mr gladstone speaking at glasgow said of these that they had been swept away in the full maturity of their faculties and in the early stages of middle life a body of men strong enough of themselves and all the gifts of wisdom and knowledge of experience and of eloquence to have equipped a cabinet for the service of the country nor must we omit the mention of the death of cardinal wiseman on february fifteenth eighteen sixty five cardinal wiseman had outlived the popular clamour once raised against him in england there was a time when his name would have set all the pulpit drums of no popery rattling he came at length to be respected and admired everywhere in england as a scholar and a man of ability he was a devoted ecclesiastic whose zeal for his church was his honour 
and whose earnest labour in the work he was set to do it shortened his busy life during the time from the first outbreak of the civil war in the united states to its close all these men were removed from the scene and the civil war was hardly over when richard cobden was quietly laid in an english country churchyard mr cobden paid a visit to his constituents of rochdale in november eighteen sixty four to address them on public affairs he was at the time struggling against a bronchial attack which made it imprudent for him to attend a public meeting especially imprudent to try to speak in public he had to travel a long way in bad weather his friends endeavoured to dissuade him from going to rochdale but he was convinced that the condition of political affairs was so full of seriousness that he could not consistently with his strong sense of duty put off addressing his constituents he had had probably some presentiment of his death for not long before he had passed in company with his friend mr bright the place where his only son lay buried and he told mr bright that he should soon be laid beside him he went to rochdale and spoke to a great public meeting and he did not appear to have lacked any of his usual ease and energy this speech the last he ever made contained the famous passage so often quoted and criticised which compared the undergraduate's knowledge of chicago with his knowledge of the Elysus. i will take any undergraduate said cobden now at oxford or cambridge and i will ask this young gentleman to walk up to a map of the united states and put his finger upon the city of chicago and i will undertake to say that he will not go within a thousand miles of it when i was at athens i sallied forth one summer morning to see the far-famed river the Elysus, and after walking some hundred yards up what appeared to be the bed of a winter torrent i came up to a number of athenian laundresses and i found that they had dammed up this far-famed classic river and that they were using every drop of the water for their linen and such sanitary purposes i say why should not the young gentlemen who are taught all about the geography of the Elysus, know something about the geography of the mississippi the ohio and the missouri mr cobden has always been charged on the faith of this contrast with a desire to throw contempt on the study of the classics and with an intention to measure the comparative value of ancient and modern literature by the relative commercial importance of chicago and the Elysus, he had no such purpose he merely meant to show that the men who dogmatized about modern countries and politics ought to know something of the subject before they spoke and wrote he contended that it is ridiculous to call a modern political writer educated because he knows something about classic greece and nothing about the united states the humorous illustration about the Elysus mr cobden had used in a former speech and curiously enough something to much the same purpose had been said by byron about the Elysus before without any one falling foul of the author of child harold and accusing him of disparaging the culture of greece byron wrote that places without a name and rivers not laid down on maps may one day when more known be justly esteemed superior subjects for the pencil and the pen to the dry ditch of the Elysus and the bogs of boeotia 
cobden had been a good deal provoked as most sensible persons were by the flood of writing poured out on the country during the american civil war in which citations from thucydides were habitually introduced to settle questions of military and political controversy in the united states that was the day for public instructors of the inspired schoolboy type who sometimes to say the truth knew little of the greek literature from which they paraded their quotations but who knew still less about the geography and the political conditions of america who were under the impression that the mississippi flowed east and west and talked complacently of english war steamers getting into lake erie apparently making no account of so considerable an obstacle as the falls of niagara this was cobden's last speech he did not come up to london until the march of eighteen sixty five and the day on which he travelled was so bitterly cold that the bronchial affection from which he was suffering became cruelly aggravated one of the last private letters he ever wrote enclosed to a friend an unsolicited contribution for the relief of a poor young english woman whose husband an american seaman had just died in london leaving her with a newly-born infant he sank rapidly and on april second he died the scene in the house of commons next evening was very touching lord palmerston and mr disraeli both spoke of cobden with genuine feeling and sympathy but mr bright's few and broken words were as noble an epitaph as friendship could wish for the grave of a great and good man some critics found fault with lord palmerston for having spoke of cobden's as demosthenic eloquence that simple conversational style it was asked does lord palmerston call that demosthenic did he not use the word as a piece of unmeaning praise merely because it came first to his lips on the contrary it is probable that palmerston thought the word expressed exactly what he wished to say we are apt to think of the eloquence of demosthenes as above all things energetic commanding overbearing by its strength and its action but this is a superficial way of regarding the great orator what is the essential characteristic of the oratory of demosthenes in which it differs from that of almost every other orator ancient and modern surely its intensely practical nature the fact that nothing is spoken without a present and determinate purpose that no word is used which does not bear upon the argument the speaker would enforce cobden had not the power or the polish of demosthenes nor can his manner have been at all like that of the athenian but his eloquence was always moulded naturally and unconsciously in the true spirit of demosthenes it was the eloquence of one who claimed only to be heard for his cause and for the arguments with which he should commend it to the intelligence of his audience those who found fault with lord palmerston's epithet only failed to understand its application the liberal party then found themselves approaching a general election with their ranks thinned by many severe losses the government had lost one powerful member by an event other than death the lord chancellor lord westbury had resigned his office in consequence of a vote of the house of commons lord westbury had made many enemies he was a man of great capacity and energy into whose nature the scorn of forms and of lesser intellects entered far too freely 
his character was somewhat wanting in the dignity of moral elevation he had a tongue of marvellous bitterness his sarcastic power was probably unequalled in the house of commons while he sat there and when he came into the house of lords he fairly took away the breath of stately and formal peers by the unsparing manner in which he employed his most dangerous gift his style of cruel irony was made all the more effective by the peculiar suavity of the tone in which he gave out his sarcasms and his epithets with a face that only suggested soft bland benevolence with eyes half closed as those of a medieval saint and in accents of subdued mellifluous benignity the lord chancellor was wont to pour out a stream of irony that corroded like some deadly acid such a man was sure to make enemies and the time came when in the scriptural sense they found him out he had been lax in the manner of using his patronage in one case he had allowed an official of the house of lords to retire and to receive a retiring pension while a grave charge connected with his conduct in another public office was to lord westbury's knowledge impending over him and lord westbury had appointed his own son to the place thus vacated thus at first sight it naturally appeared that lord westbury had sanctioned the pensioning off of a public servant against whom a serious charge was still awaiting decision in order that a place might be found for the lord chancellor's own son in the other case that of an appointment to the leeds bankruptcy court the authority of lord westbury had been made use of by a member of his family to sanction a very improper arrangement in this case however it was shown that lord westbury knew nothing of the proposal and had never had any idea of assisting any member of his family by his influence in the matter no one believed that even in the former case he had been influenced by any corrupt motive he had been led into error by a too easy good nature towards certain members of his family and by a carelessness which the engrossing character of his other duties might at least have excused if it could not have justified still there could be no doubt that the manner in which he had exercised his patronage or allowed it to be exercised was deserving of reprehension End of section thirty nine